So uh, this is actually episode 10 of The Weirdest Thing. I double-checked this time. There we go. So uh, if you guys are just joining us for the first time, my name is Scotty Milder. I am a filmmaker and horror author here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yep, and I am his trusty sidekick, Amelia Empuero. I am an actor and theater maker, also here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Let's rock and roll. Yeah, this is The Weirdest (laughs) Thing. This is our podcast about weird shit. Um, well, I guess I'm going first this week. So You I, are. I am going to tell you about one of the most mysterious places on earth. Ooh. And I'm going to get all these pronunciations wrong, so I apologize. Fantastic. Anyone, anyone from Turkey, I apologize. Um, oh. But it's, it's a place called, I'm going to do my best here, Gobekli Tepe. It is located in the southeastern Anatolia region near the city of Urfa, just north of the Syrian border. My sources for this are, of course, Wikipedia. Of always. course. And then also an article from Smithsonian Magazine called Gobekli Tepe, the world's first temple, question mark. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then uh, Britannica Online. Do you so, donate to Wikipedia? Uh, yes. Let me, let me rephrase once. that. Let me, yeah, I was going to rephrase <laughs> that. Let me rephrase that. Have you donated to Wikipedia? I have, yeah. I actually have started donating since beginning this, since we started this podcast. I should. I should, because this is basically keeping us afloat here. 100% so. Wikipedia, thank you for everything you do. And I'm sorry, but anyone who's going to shade us for using Wikipedia for this thing, go start your own fucking podcast. That's what I have to say. Look, if you want me to read books... <laughs> on... <laughs> I, I didn't realize how fucking bratty that was going to sound until the words... <laughs> came out of my mouth if you want me to read books if you want me to like learn things uh no i mean part of this is like i love learning about all this stuff but if you if you do want me to read books somebody's going to have to pay me to read those Mm -hmm. books 100 percent. because even just going through articles that we can find online this is some time consuming shit love doing it having a blast yeah but this takes a hot minute yeah, it does. And 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 for the record, no one has actually shaded us for using <laughs> Wikipedia, but yeah, I just figured I'd preemptively be a snot about it. I feel like you and me like to preemptively be like, well, if this person's going <laughs> to say shit to me and everybody's like, nobody wants to say shit to either of you. We're yeah, just living no our cares. lives doing our, nobody cares what either of you are doing. And we're like, well, you better not because my response to that would be, uh, yeah. and nobody really has ever talked shit to you no. or I. Okay, so Gobekli Tepe it is, like I said, it's located in the southeastern Anatolia region of Turkey, near the city of Urfa. It okay. means potbelly hill in Turkish. Okay. Um, because it's shaped like a big old fat potbelly. A potbelly. Um, nice. So it was, and I'm obviously, <laughs> whenever we are talking about Europeans going into these places, we need to use heavy air quotes around the word discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was quote-unquote discovered mm-hmm. by a German archaeologist and excavator named Klaus Schmidt. 
1995. So fairly recently. When what year was this? 1995. Whoa. So okay. it was just it was just a big sort of hill in this barren plateau that people were you know grazing their sheep on and growing stuff on and it had all these big weird rocks no one really knew what it was and then actually back in 1963 istanbul university with the university of chicago they did a survey of the hill Mm -hmm. and they saw these stone slabs and pillars that they thought were grave markers and so they were like well this is obviously like a, a roman era or byzantine era cemetery it's not that interesting and they just like moved on but then in the 90s this klaus schmidt guy he was investigating another settlement nearby and i'm looking to see if i have the name of the settlement uh, Navali Kori, which was roughly from the same time period, a little bit younger. And it, it was actually a, a village. And it had similar stone pillars to this Potbelly Hill area. So he was like, I'm going to just like head over and check this out because I think this might actually be something prehistoric. And so he started digging. He got a team together, obviously, started digging. Mm-hmm. And they discovered this ancient, ancient, ancient site. So this is what, this is from the Smithsonian article. It says Schmidt returned a year later. So this, he, he decided to go examine the site in 1994. He returned in 1995. So he returned a year later with five colleagues and they uncovered the first megaliths, a few buried so close to the surface that they were actually scarred by plows. As the archaeologists dug deeper, they unearthed pillars arranged in circles. Schmidt's team, however, found none of the telltale signs of a settlement, no cooking hearths, houses or trash pits and none of the clay fertility figurines that litter nearby sites of about the same age the archaeologists did find evidence of tool use however including stone hammers and blades and because those artifacts closely resemble others from nearby sites previously carbon dated to about 9000 bc schmidt and co-workers estimate that gobekli tepe's stone structures were from the same age Limited carbon dating undertaken by Schmidt at the site confirms this assessment. This is from 2008. This article is from 2008. Okay. So actually what they've determined is that it's actually even older than that. There were two phases of use at Gobekli Tepe. The oldest dates back to about 10,000 BC. Um, To give a little bit of a point of reference, it's about 6,000 years older than Stonehenge. What? It's also sort of five to 6,000 years before the rise of the ancient Sumerian culture of Iraq, which is largely considered the first real culture, like with city-states and writing. And, you know, like history basically dates to the Sumerians. Okay. Because they were the first culture that anyone has discovered writing as the cuneiform tablets. Gobekli Tepe is about 6,000 years older than that. It's also about 7,500 years older than the pyramids at Giza. Okay, I was going to ask how it was in relation to the pyramids. Yeah, because the that, Sumerians... That, that yeah. to me feels like the oldest thing. Right. Um, <laughs> because was, isn't it something that like the pyramids were being... When the pyramids started being built... Is this right? When the pyramids started being built, woolly mammoths still roamed the planet? Uh, well, they think... Yeah, this is a whole other thing. Like, right. Uh, woolly mammoths, they think, might have existed as a relic population in parts of Siberia up until about... 10,000 years ago or so. Wow. So possibly. Interesting. I also saw something that said that Cleopatra lived closer to the invention of the iPhone than she did to the building of the pyramids. Yeah, I think that's true. And what's crazy is you look at these time periods, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's easy once you get past like BC and then everything is sort of 500 years BC, a thousand years BC, 6,000 years BC. It's like when you think about the difference between four and 6,000 BC, 
that's the difference between like the time of Jesus Christ and now. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so it's just sort of eh, four to 6,000 BC sort of as this range. And it's like, that's right. a lot of shit happened in that time. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody was going through it. And so this, this Gobekli Tepe, it was in use for a couple thousand years. So there are two phases of use at Gobekli. Actually, well, there are three layers. I'll get to that in a minute. But they think there are two phases of use at Gobekli Tepe. So the oldest goes back to about 10,000 BC. And then there was another phase of use that came after it that was around 8,800 BC to about 8,000 BC. Okay. So during the first page, which was during what's called the pre-pottery Neolithic A phase of human development, the builders of Gobekli Tepe erected about 200 massive pillars in these ring structures, these circular structures. Now, the pre-pottery Neolithic A phase, just so you know, this was roughly between, I think, 11,000 and 8,800 BC. They've dated it. And this, at the time, human beings mostly lived in nomadic lifestyles or mud brick buildings. They just started the cultivation of crops, and I'm going to get to that a little bit later, but still mostly were essentially hunter-gatherers. It immediately followed what was called the Natufian culture, which was a hunter-gatherer culture that were just starting to kind of settle down in the Middle East and and sort of settle in one place. So this is like the earliest, earliest stages of human development of civilization. We're going from just bands of roving nomadic hunter-gatherers to actually creating a sort of... A life more like we know it today. Right, like a structured society. Society, yeah, okay. Wow. Um. So each of these pillars uh, has a height of up to about uh, 20 feet. They weigh about 10 tons. And then they're fitted into these sockets that are like carved out of the local bedrock. How? So this, well, this is what's interesting. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I'll get to some of this. You're bit. like, let me tell you the story. <laughs> <laughs> now in the second phase of Gobekli Tepe, this was part of the pre-pottery Neolithic B era. Okay. And so this is around sort of more 8,800 to 8,000 years ago. There are still these pillars, and they're T-shaped pillars, which I'll get to in a little bit. It's kind of important. Uh, But these were smaller, and rather than being in these circular rooms, they're in rectangular rooms with floors of polished lime. Now, the site was abandoned after this this period around 88 to 8,000 BC. And then there are younger structures that were built on top of it that go back to more like classical times, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Roman era, et cetera. So when Schmidt and his his dudes showed up, I shouldn't assume they're all dudes, but his -hmm. people... There probably were. <laughs> Wait, sorry. <laughs> cool. What year is this? Ninety five. Ninety five is probably okay. No, there, no, there might have been some. Might have been some, some, some non dudes. Yeah. When they first went to check out the site, there were some of the stone slabs were kind of just laying about, and actually, local farmers and whatnot had tried to break them up, thinking they were just like rocks that they could use and you know building their houses, etc. But as they started digging around, they dug down and they discovered all these different layers. So here's a quote from that Smithsonian article. It says, Schmidt returned a year later with five colleagues uh, and uncovered the first megaliths. Let's see, did I already read this one? Yeah, I did, Never mind. There was a, there was a okay, <laughs> edit this out too. We are rocking today. This is the <laughs> best episode of this podcast so we have good. ever recorded. Guys. <laughs> We're both operating under, like, severe sleep deprivation today. <laughs> oh, my God. 
God, just a fucking professional from top to bottom. Okay. Okay. Now this is the quote I wanted to read. Okay. Um, So this is just sort of a description. Uh, This is from that same Smithsonian article. It says, we follow a knot of workmen up the hill to rectangular pits shaded by corrugated steel roof, the main excavation site. In the pit, standing stones or, or pillars are arranged in circles. Beyond, on the hillside, are four other rings of partially excavated pillars. Each ring has a roughly similar layout. In the center are two large stone T-shaped pillars encircled by slightly smaller stones facing inward. The tallest pillars tower over 16 feet tall, and Schmidt says weigh between 7 and 10 tons. As we walk among them, I see that some are blank, while others are elaborately carved. Foxes, lions, scorpions, and vultures abound twisting and crawling on the pillar's broad sides so it's it's a real i'm gonna get to like why the horror fan in me loves the story (laughs) okay so they radiocarbon dated some of the structures they determined it was they go back to about 10,000 bc i was going to include some information on what exactly radiocarbon dating is because it's something we all hear and then i read Uh the wikipedia article on it and was like no this is boring as shit. <laughs> it's just like a bunch of science that I don't care about. So there is so um there like there are a bunch of listicles that'll come out, right? That are like the, these are the most horrifying Wikipedia pages that you can read mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And one of them is basically like, you know, and there's like there's cool, there's cool ass shit on there, you know, people who've like disappeared. Um the JFK autopsy page is pretty oh, interesting, yeah. also very graphic. So if you wander into that. <laughs> Uh, just know that there are yeah like uncensored autopsy photos in there Mm -hmm. but one of them is like theories essentially theories about how the solar system will end (laughs) and it's so funny because every time i see it people are like oh oh my god this is such a fascinating and terrifying read and it's not supposed to happen for like a billion years but oh my god blah, blah blah I have tried multiple times mm-hmm. to read that Wikipedia page and like three sentences into it. I'm like, yeah. As soon as I start seeing like equations, on the <laughs> Wikipedia page, I just skip. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to try to talk to me in math, I tried, I tried to learn about like quantum physics and string theory on Wikipedia. And that's not the way to learn about quantum physics. I think you have to want to learn about, yeah. Like you can't just sort of be like, I don't think you can have a passing curiosity about quantum physics. No. Uh, I think you've really got to want to like really dig into in. the material. Oh exactly. God. And I'm with you. I, I'm nope. nope. <laughs> no, thank you. Okay. So uh, a little bit more about sort of the description of the location. So it's on this like flat and barren plateau that then sort of goes up into the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the buildings all kind of fan out in all directions. And what, from what it sounds like is like a triangular shape. So there's like different enclosures and they form an equilateral triangle. It says the pattern is an equal, this is from Wikipedia. It says the pattern is an equilateral triangle that connects enclosures A, B, and D. Now I don't know what these different enclosures are. Okay. Um, so this means basically that the people who built it had at least some knowledge of geometry because it's an equilateral equilateral triangle um, <laughs> i was like equilateral that's not you say that word oh. <laughs> I, I but that's it. the name of the episode equilateral I equilateral can't triangle there we equilateral go. triangle <laughs> <laughs> so it's that that basically they're all form 
these enclosures A, B, and D all form one complex, and that within this complex, there's a hierarchy with enclosure D at the top. And then the archaeologists believe that they were all built around the same time, enclosure D being the most important. But they don't really know why. They don't really know exactly what it was used for. Okay. So, like I said, there are three layers. So here's the description of the layer. So the top layer, layer one, I'm actually, I'm going to go backwards here and then try not to fuck this up. Okay. So layer one, <laughs> the look <laughs> on your face, you're like, oh, taking a risk. Today is, yeah, today is not the day to try to not fuck something up. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, so layer one is the most, you. it's the most recent and it was, and it's been used up to mar- modern times for farming and grazing. It's been severely damaged over the years by erosion and human use. And then here's one of the things I find the most interesting is that at some point around 8,000 BC, the entire site was abandoned. And not only was it abandoned, they filled it in. Like they backfilled it under layers of stones, animal bones, and flint tools. So this kept all the lower layers hidden and very well preserved. Wow, Um, okay. But it's like not only that, that they were like, we don't need this anymore, they were like, cover it up. Yeah, that's a little... That's weird. Layer two, this is from around 8,000 BC, so it's, it's not the oldest part, but it's similar to layer three. It has the circular rooms that I mentioned before that were replaced by rectangular rooms. It still has pillars, so they're probably built for a similar ceremonial, probably ceremonial purpose. There are a pair of pillars that have been discovered that are decorated with fierce-looking lions, and it gives this enclosure the name the Lion Pillar Building. Mm-hmm. And then they also found a totem pole, or what they call a totem pole. Mm-hmm. It's similar to the totem poles you find like in the Pacific Northwest of this country, um, but it's stone. They discovered it in 2010. It's about two meters high, and it features three figures. So the uppermost figure, it depicts some sort of predator, and according to Wikipedia, it says it's probably a bear. And then below it is like a human-like shape. But since the statue is severely damaged the interpretation is not really clear of what, what it is actually meant to represent. Okay. They did find fragments of a similar pole about 20 years earlier at that Navali Kori site, which is the, the nearby village. Mm-hmm. So that's part of why they think these are linked sites. And then layer three, this is the oldest layer. So this is 10,000 BC. So as you're going down, this is when the first circular compounds appear. These are where you get the evenly set pillars set within the interior walls of these circles. And if you look at it, it, I mean, it kind of looks like if if anyone's familiar with like New Mexico, ancient Puebloans, it kind of looks like a Kiva. Okay. Um, But then it's got these pillars lined up inside of it. Now they think that the slabs were transported down from bedrock pits that were located approximately 300 feet up from the hill. Mm-hmm. And they think that the workers used flint points to cut through the limestone bedrock. So this is where, like, you were asking, like, how did they do this? Like, they've they've looked at the cut marks on all these stones. Mm-hmm. They can tell what type of tools were used. And it was, like, the type of flint tools people used were known to use from this time period. But they wow. just made these massive megaliths. Question? So it, yeah. What the hell is a megalith? So megalith is basically, like, a massive stone carving of some sort okay from an ancient culture so like you know stonehenge is a megalithic structure you have the standing stones throughout the uk and europe are are considered megaliths the pyramids are megaliths etc is stuff like like machu picchu does that count is that is that megaliths or is that not 
I'm well, Machu Picchu probably what I don't know is like is a megalith the entire site considered a megalith or is, or is it, it like the individual when i think of megaliths i think of the actual like it's like giant stones okay. giant stonework so i don't know that machu picchu has that but i wouldn't be surprised they do okay then yeah they, they would have megaliths them. whether it's entirely the site is entirely called a megalith i mm-hmm. don't know i'm not sure what the type of definition is mm-hmm. don't trust anything i say today yeah. like <laughs> Those playing along at home, fact checked, fact check one hundred percent of everything I say today. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm just like am in a fever dream. You're just like trying to work <laughs> in like a, a no brag, no brag about having been to Machu Picchu. I was actually just trying to work in just name drop Machu Picchu. Oh, like in Machu Picchu? Where I've been. Where I've been, haven't. where I fucking rode the train up to Machu Picchu. I can't even say that I hiked it. I fucking yeah. rode that train up there in style uh, <laughs> like a motherfucker. And I do not regret it. I know people who hiked Machu Picchu. And you know what? Good for them. That was yeah, not me. Yeah, I've, I've seen the pictures. And I'm like, there's no fucking way I'm hauling my ass up that. Like, I will ride the tr- shit out of that train, but I am not hiking. Up into yeah. the freaking Andes. I'm like, no, thank you. I will say too, you take a train to like the bottom of the mountain and then you take a bus. And uh, if you really want to live, head into South America, I think actually any part of Latin America and hop on a bus. Oh, uh, I've heard. I, yeah, I should, for a thrill. Either me or you at some point should should do an episode about the uh, Bolivian death road. Ooh. Yeah. Because that's, Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's good times. Good times. <laughs> okay, so so within these these circles where they have the evenly spaced pillars, they'll also have two taller pillars that face each other. And then inside the circles are, are stone benches. So obviously people were would go in and sit. Mm. And then these pillars are decorated with strange pic- pictograms and then carved with animal reliefs. And the animals, so they think the pictograms may represent sacred symbols and then the animals are everything from lions bulls boars foxes donkeys gazelles snakes and other reptiles and then insects and vultures now one thing that is fascinating wow. and and i've read this a few different times but i'm, I'm gonna get to like some of the tinfoil hat shit about gobekli tepe in a little bit and so awesome. some of this that i've read i'm not sure if this is like tinfoil hat stuff or if this is actual verified but one thing i've heard is that the majority of these animal reliefs are predator figures like mm. scary animals and then a lot mm-hmm. of vultures and so people don't know why they were you know scorpions things like that you know not like cuddly teddy bear type animals yeah Hmm. Um, okay but you know one thing that's interesting is that none of these animals are live in this area but they think back at that time the area was probably forested now it's like very much a desert and they think because of human use overuse over cultivation of the land it's essentially created a dust bowl in this region so this would have been a very fertile area in fact it's part of what's called the fertile crescent Mm -hmm. but now not so much right because Um, humans yeah, because humans, because people uh. fuck everything up. So here's, here's a quote. This is from that same Smithsonian article. 
The area was like a paradise, says Schmidt. Indeed, Gobekli Tepe sits at the northern edge of the Fertile Crescent, an arc of mild climate and arable land from the Persian Gulf to present-day Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, and Egypt, and would have attracted hunter-gatherers from Africa and the Levant. And partly because Schmidt has found no evidence that people permanently resided on the summit of Gobekli Tepe itself, he believes this was a place of worship on an unprecedented scale. Humanity's first, quote, cathedral on a hill. Ooh, okay. Now, one thing that's interesting is that there are very few humanoid-type carvings. But they think that the pillars, they're these T-shaped pillars, so it's a pillar with like a T at the top, Mm -hmm. might be meant to represent a sort of stylized human that they think might either be meant to venerate ancestors Mm -hmm. or could be deities that have gone unnamed from this ancient sort of forgotten culture. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what is Gobekli Tepe? Uh, So, okay, put on the tinfoil hats. (laughs) You you enjoyed that way more than I expected. Because it was just the punctuation of the word was just so unexpected. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. Tinfoil hat firmly affixed. Yeah, so a lot of people think that Gobekli Tepe was built by aliens. Okay. Um, so like any of these things, like we've talked about, we look at the Denver airport stories. Like if you Google Gobekli Tepe, you're going to find the Smithsonian article, you're going to find Wikipedia, then you're going to find a lot of bullshit. Yep. Now I want to talk a little bit about why this ancient astronaut aliens built all the old shit theory is real mm-hmm. problematic. Okay. These are usually European white people looking back at ancient cultures and saying, mm-hmm. well, obviously they were too primitive. Right. It must have been the aliens. Right. To them. And it's like, just because you can't figure out how they did it didn't mean they couldn't figure out how to do it. Yeah. That's so like, like I said, when, when they've looked at these, you know, the cup marks on these stones, they can see, no, the tools were tools that were used by people of that time period. Mm-hmm. um this is widely documented so yeah the ancient like again mm. the, the sci-fi horror guy in me always wants it to be aliens and sure the actual like rational human being in me is like probably not aliens right um, <laughs> probably not aliens sorry, sorry to disappoint on the on the believability scale i'm putting this one at a one <laughs> <laughs> now there's also theories that it, this may be linked to the biblical garden of eden i did not have time to really find a lot on that but that's mm-hmm. fascinating that seems like you know if you're talking about like a cultural history of something you know possible <clears throat> now klaus schmidt this archaeologist he believed it was a mountain sanctuary and religious center like i said there are no signs of actual human habitation there so they think it was not built to be a dwelling place. But they have found butchered animal bones. Uh, and so they, they suggest that there could have been some ritual, ritualized feasting and maybe even like animal sacrifices that mm-hmm. happened there. It is also possible that it could be a burial place. So Schmidt thought it was a location for a cult of the dead. And basically these cults of the dead, basically ancestor worship. Mm, okay. Um, he believes that these scary animals were placed there to protect the dead. And no tombs or graves have been found, but he thinks it's possible. Actually, he doesn't think this because he's dead. He passed away. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so he thinks nothing. He thinks okay. Nothing. He thought that okay. it was possible that <laughs> we're really we're we're just we're fucking rocking this one. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, he thought that it was possible that graves could still be discovered. But as of this point, from what I've read, I was trying to find more like recent stuff. It sounds like they still have, I think they found individual bodies or body parts, mm-hmm. bones here and there, but nothing mm-hmm. that shows like a mass grave site or anything. Okay. Now in 2017, they did discover a human crania with specific incisions in it. <laughs> Ooh, okay. um and so i read this this i think was also on wikipedia it was like this is interpreted as providing evidence for a new form of neolithic skull cult and of course i was like what the fuck is a skull cult yeah <laughs> yeah who who isn't and who doesn't want to who isn't immediately enticed by the idea of a skull cult well let me tell you what a skull cult is because i looked Ugh. this up okay so this is from uh, Britannica Online. It says a skull cult is the veneration of human skulls, usually those of ancestors, by various prehistoric and some modern primitive people. I'm not nuts about that word primitive. But mm-hmm. It's from Britannica, so not surprising. Well, mm-hmm. So begun probably as early as the early Paleolithic period, the practice of preserving and honoring the skull apart from the rest of the skeleton appears to have continued in different forms throughout prehistoric times. Although some scholars believe these, that these skulls demonstrate prehistoric man's cannibalism, most authorities agree that the skulls were cleaned and set up for worship long after death. Mm, so again, okay. lots of like assumptions people like to make about these ancient peoples. Like right. skulls, obviously they're eating faces off of their ancestors or whatever but he also believed that the t-shaped pillars were meant to represent human forms like i said possibly deities or even these venerated ancestors mm-hmm. and then this is really interesting to me he thought that the proto-religion of the people who built gobekli tepe uh, might have actually then developed into the more detailed and documented reliefs of the ancient sumerians mm-hmm. you know a few thousand years later who okay you know down in iraq so the sumerians believed that agriculture animal husbandry and weaving were all brought to humans from the sacred mountain of akur and from what i read i don't think there is an actual mountain of akur i think this was it's it's like their version almost of mount olympus okay it's where the gods descended okay this sacred mountain was the home place of very ancient deities that went without individual names schmidt identified this story as a primeval myth that preserves a partial memory of the emerging neolithic so basically he's saying that you know that this sumerian belief that oh they came from the sacred mountain somewhere up north and brought all these skills to us you know these gods came down and brought all these skills might actually be a cultural memory of gobekli tepe and the people who had built that okay because this is another quote from that uh, Smithsonian article. It says, Schmidt, Schmidt says, Gobekli Tepe's builders were on the verge of a major change in how they lived, thanks to an environment that held the raw materials for farming. They had wild sheep, wild grains that could be domesticated, and the people with the potential to do it. In fact, research at other sites in the region has shown that within a thousand years of Gobekli Tepe's construction, settlers had corralled sheep, cattle, and pigs. In a, a prehistoric village just 20 miles away, which is, I think, this Navali Kori that I've already mm-hmm. mentioned. In a prehistoric village just 20 miles away, geneticists found evidence of the world's oldest domesticated strains of wheat. Radiocarbon wow. dating indicates agriculture developed there around 
10,500 years ago, or just five centuries after Gobekli Tepe's construction. To Schmidt and others, these new findings suggest a novel theory of civilization. Scholars have long believed that only after people learned to farm and live in settled communities did they have the time, organization, and resources to construct temples and support complicated social structures. But Schmidt argues it was the other way around. The extensive coordinated effort to build the monoliths literally laid the groundwork for the development of complex societies. Wow. Okay. And I love that. I love that theory because it's like, you know, you could go with like, well, it was the aliens who did it. Right. Or you could go with like, this is like a sign of human ingenuity at the earliest, earliest, earliest stages. Right. And the very act of coming together to build this temple complex actually created the bonds that then led to this development of a more organized society. And like I said, this is right at that time where the people were moving on the cusp from being hunter-gatherers into agricultural and farming societies. Yeah, and it feels like that, like coming together to do that, kind of like to, to coming together to accomplish that kind of monumental task is also where you would start like getting a sense of like people's personalities and stuff. And it wouldn't mm-hmm. just be, you know, like, oh yeah, there's that other nomad that, you know, I see exactly. on the planes every now and then, but like you start finding out who's like a really good storyteller, who's a good leader, who's really, mm-hmm. who shares really well, who's funny. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I like that theory much better. Much better than aliens. Uh, yeah. Now I'm, but here's where I'm going to talk about like the horror guy in me, like the stuff that fascinates me. Cause in full disclosure, I actually am using Gobekli Tepe as a plot point in a novel that I wrote that called the darks that cheater cheater. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully someday uh, you guys will get a chance to read, but a couple of, you know, of the mysteries that fascinate me. Mm-hmm. is, you know, the fact that it, this massive temple complex was built five, 6,000 years before anything similarly massive has been discovered. Yeah. Um, also, the fact that they backfilled, that they, they essentially looks like they tried to hide it. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. So I've, you know, there's the, the, the part of me, and I'm not putting this out there as a conspiracy theory. This is just my imagination. <laughs> okay. What I'm using for my novel okay. is what if the people who built Gobekli Tepe were not human? What if the animals were not meant to protect the dead or whatever, but were actually warning to stay away? Mm-hmm. And then what if these non-human entities that built this place once they were eradicated, the humans went in and were like, we need to like sell the earth with salt, make right. it like it never existed. Okay. So that's, that's my, uh, that's my Lovecraftian take. Okay. <laughs> Go back to Tepe. But in reality, actually, I re- I really do like this idea that, you know, this, this shows how just industrious humans were at the yeah. earliest stages of development. Yeah. Oh God, that's fascinating. So that is the story of Gobekli Tepe. Yay! Super cool. Yeah, I it's 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 I don't know, it's interesting to me to see like if you've ever watched a young child like learn how to like use a utensil or right. learn to walk and stuff, like it it doesn't make it's funny to me that humans will be like I can watch a child learn to do on, to do all these things mostly out of just you know like there's a little bit of teaching that's going on but it's not like teaching a child to read you know what I mean right. like they're they're really just like making these like these little brain leaps 
uh, on their own. And so it's funny to me whenever people are like, I understand that a, a baby could do that, but I don't believe like humanity could do that. Over though, like a couple thousand years, a few humans were like, hey, maybe we can use these stone axes to actually... Yeah. And that, I think that's the thing to me too, that like if, you know, early man was able to look at a rock and be like, well, what if I did this with that? And then, you know, tied it to a, to a stick. And then I can, like, I can make a tool, but they won't, they won't extrapolate that into mm-hmm. larger ideas right. and structures and all that stuff. Well, and I do think there is a, there is this kind of cultural, I don't know uh, what the word would be, condescension that comes with this idea that, well, these ancient, and, and to be fair, it's not all like white people thinking this about non-white people because, you know, people think Stonehenge was also built by aliens. Right. You know, right. but it's just this like, well, clearly, you know, this was pre our amazing civilization. So clearly yeah. these barbarians could not figure out how to do this themselves and it's like right. no they super did they they figured it out and they fucking built it like right yeah i was putting you know ground up mustard seed on this cut actually i shouldn't say that because like what it was uh, i keep wanting to say pumice but that's not the word that i'm looking for what is it called when you like make a, a like a paste and you a paste and you like put it on a wound a poultice a poultice and that actually is like a that's a real thing and like lots Mm -hmm. of indigenous cultures use that i'm tired i am not making sense excellent (laughs) excellent story well done yeah (laughs) i'm just gonna quit while i'm ahead i'm really looking forward to your story because this is gonna be a wild ride yeah Let's see how it goes. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you today about the Gardner Museum theft. Information for this story comes from GardnerMuseum.org, an article in Bloomberg Business Week, Wikipedia, OBS. And uh, I also pulled a little info from GardnerHeist.com. That's a blog. It's like there's an entire blog devoted to this. There's a couple. Oh, wow. I mean, this is, okay, so this is a really cool story. Let's dive in. I'm going to give you a little bit of history first. So our story starts with Isabella Stewart Gardner. She was an American art collector, philanthropist, and arts patron living in Boston near the turn of the century. She was totally this like wild character. She had this reputation for being exceptionally stylish. She possessed a quote unquote energetic intellectual curiosity. She loved to travel and her eccentric behavior earned her quite the reputation among Boston society. There are stories about like things that she did and outfits that she wore and all of this shit that it's like, it is still talked about in Boston society today. I don't know about that shit because I don't know anything about Boston society, but cool. I mean, I lived in Boston. I never heard of it. All right. Well, get you know, you don't know everything, Scotty. Apparently not. (laughs) So... Throughout her life, like she's living her life, she's doing her thing, she's a fancy lady in Boston, and she starts collecting art. And she acquired an incredible art collection throughout her lifetime. She really began this collection in earnest after she inherited $1.75 million from her father. She and her husband like went all over the world. And what and they time just, period? This is in the late 1800s. Okay. And they they just they got they got stuff from Egypt. They got stuff from uh, I believe actually like Turkey and and Syria. And all, I mean everywhere, all over Europe, everywhere. Her collection included works by Vermeer, Botticelli. She was actually the first American to own a Botticelli. Oh, cool. Uh, she, 
She owned Titian's uh, stuff by Raphael and Velasquez. She actually provided many of the art pieces that reside in the Harvard Lampoon building, because uh, Boston, Harvard, you know, mm-hmm. whole thing. It's actually unclear how much that collection is worth because the folks at the Lampoon are a secretive bunch of little bitches. So <laughs> we don't actually know like what's in there or how much it's worth. Uh, when she would buy, because it was uncommon for women to practice art collection and dealing Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff so she would like give money to a male colleague and be like hey go buy me that velasquez and the guy would go and buy it and secure it for her and do all of that oh that's cool yeah so she's rocking and rolling in her life she's got her husband her and her husband have a child that child dies probably because you know victorian era just hard living all all the children died Right. It was, I don't know, probably his, his, I keep saying, I keep talking about this shit on here. His humors were fucked up or whatever and he <laughs> died. But so the rock I like and roll. I like how we talk about the Victorian era like they are the barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Just get a sip of my cranberry juice there, promoting some Healthy. urinary tract health. Uh, <laughs> Okay, that was TMI. Sorry, everybody. Okay. That, that could also be the title of this episode. <laughs> Promoting urinary tract health. <laughs> oh, my God. With Amelia Empuera. <laughs> <laughs> urinary tract health. New podcast idea. Urinary tract health with Amelia Empuera. Um, fantastic. Where was I? Okay, so her and her husband are rocking and rolling. They have a kid. That kid dies. They continue to collect a whole shit ton of art while this is happening. Her husband, Jack passes away in 1898 and up to like leading up to Jack's death Isabella and Jack started talking about like maybe we need a new place like we've got a shit ton of art mm-hmm. I want to say her entire collection is over 16,000 pieces oh wow yeah it's a lot I just have this image of them like you know shoving things like in the <laughs> closets and stuff yeah it's like uh, it's like Citizen Kane or something yeah so they had started to talk about whether or not they needed a new house and what they could do with that. And they, and, and I think Isabella really wanted a place where she would be able to, that would be able to house her collection and, and be her home mm-hmm. and all of that. So Jack passes away in 1898 and Isabella's like, fuck it, let's rock, let's do this. And she decides to find a larger place for her and her collection. And that was the beginning of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. She was super, super involved in every aspect of the design. The building was, and it's this like Venetian palace type of thing. There were columns and an inner courtyard and Mm. all that jazz. And it was, the building was designed by an architect by the name of Spears. Spears, or I'm sorry, Sears, like the store, Sears. Sears went on to say that Isabella was so involved that he was really basically just a structural engineer on the project. Yeah, like so she was just like build it like this. Yeah, she's like grabbing the pencil from him, yeah. erasing his all wrong, <laughs> just yeah. xing shit out. Yeah, so there's that. I'm sure he was super happy about that. So she's she's involved in every aspect of the design, and once the thing is built, she spends a year installing her collection into the space. Okay. The museum finally opens and it opens for like a private reception for Boston's high society in 1903. The opening reception included a performance by the Boston Symphony Orchestra and in like ultimate fancy lady move, a menu that included champagne and donuts, (laughs) which I am so excited about. I don't know why champagne, like it's just, I, 
I, I can't even. I can't mm. even with the thought of champagne and donuts. I'm so tickled by it. I mean, you should you should get that for my birthday dinner tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even like champagne. I know. I just want to watch you like, enjoy yee! the champagne and yes, donuts. Yes. Just yeah. like giddy about champagne and donuts. And I want them to be like little donuts. I, okay. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so one of the works of art that's in there is Titian's Rape of Europa. And it hangs in the museum. She hangs it on a piece of pale green silk. That piece of pale green silk was actually cut from one of her own gowns. Mm. So she's just like putting her mark on all of this. It's just yeah. like, this is mine. Right. And I think at the time, like she was like, yeah, this is a museum, but she was like, no, but really this is my house. Yeah. And it was like, the, it included a residence in which uh, Isabella actually lived in until her death in 1924. And then I think it was like on the fourth floor of the building. And then that residence, like the, the, the museum director would live oh, in okay. that, in that apartment. So when Isabella died, she created a $1 million endowment in her will, and she outlined some very specific stipulations for how the museum was to be run after her death. One of these stipulations was that the permanent collection could not be altered in any significant way. Mm -hmm. That's going to be important, so we're going to come back to that later. Okay. Let's get to the robbery. On Sunday, March 18th, 1990, there were two museum guards on duty at the Gardner. One was Rick Abbott, and he was 23 years old. The other was Randy Heston, and he was 25. Mm -hmm. uh, Heston was like a New England conservatory student. He liked to like jam out on his trombone, like pretty steady dude. Mm -hmm. The night of uh, March 18th was his first night shift at the museum. He okay. worked He worked at the museum, but it was his first night shift. Abbott, on the other hand, was like in a rock band. He was known <laughs> for showing up to work like drunk or stoned. He had like long curly hair. Uh, sounds like someone we'd hang out with probably. <laughs> <laughs> Heston was a total tool, a total nerd, uh, and Abbott was definitely the one to hang out with. Uh, the night of the robbery, Abbott showed up to work in bright red pants and a tie-dye t-shirt under his unbuttoned security shirt. So, like, guy had no fucks to give. No. Um, neither Abbott nor Heston had any formal security training, and that's kind of how it went for the Gardner. So mm -hmm. let's actually dig into security protocols at the Gardner Museum. They sucked. So the museum was struggling financially, and the board wouldn't approve the funds to raise guard wages so that they could like entice more qualified security personnel. So the guards were paid peanuts. Motions to install security cameras within the museum were rejected by the board for being too expensive. Mm. Again, 16,000 works of art. Yeah, seems like a some penny pinching bullshit. Yeah. The only way to call, like to get in touch with the police and get the police to the museum was a single panic button that was located at the security desk. The museum's sole protections were 60 infrared motion detectors and a CCTV uh, circuit of four cameras placed around the perimeter of the building outside. Okay. Other museums at the time would had like much stronger fail-safe systems. They would do things like the security guards would have to call the police every hour to be like, yo, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. We're all good here. Keep it moving. The gardener's security system, like security policy, was that one guard would patrol the galleries with a flashlight and a walkie-talkie while the other hung out at the security desk. 
And I'm guessing like Abbott is the guy who's like, I'll just hang out at the So <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna get to that. Okay. Um <laughs> Yeah. So again, like not a lot of money. They're not hiring the best people. There's not a lot of security measures in place. Not a, not a great situation. Apparently all of the guards knew about the weak spots in the museum security. Like it was an open secret among the guards. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew how bad it was. So around 1230 AM on the evening of Sunday, March 18th, this is hours after St. Patrick's day, Boston, Okay, so let's just... <laughs> yeah, I've, I've experienced that. Mm-hmm. Just get mm-hmm. that into your, you know, get that reveling into your mind's eye. A couple of like St. Patty's Day partiers saw two policemen sitting in a hatchback car by the side entrance of the museum. Okay, and what Are, year was this again? 1990. Okay. Okay, around the same time, Abbott goes to do one of his patrols. During his patrol, fire alarms start going off in a couple of different rooms in the museum, but Abbott couldn't find anything. Okay. Like he investigated, he couldn't find anything. The fire alarm panel signaled that smoke was in multiple rooms, but again, the guards, like they didn't find any smoke. They didn't find anything on fire. They Mm. didn't smell smoke, nothing. So they assumed the system was malfunctioning and they shut it down. Okay. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Abbott goes back on his rounds, and while he's on them, he stops at a side entrance. There's a door. It's this little side entrance. He opens and closes the side entrance and keeps it moving. He doesn't tell Heston that he does this or why. Mm. By 1 a.m., Abbott has finished his patrol, and he goes back to the security desk and basically tags Heston in, right? Like, okay, okay, now you go do it. And I guess that's how they would just spend their night is just, like, alternatingly. Mm Mm-hmm going on these patrols which sounds i don't know like could either be a really cool job if maybe you've got a podcast you want to listen to um <laughs> but 1990 probably was pretty boring yeah so at 1:20 a.m the two cops that had been seen outside earlier they approach the side door and they ring they ring the buzzer abbott's hanging out at the security desk and he answers okay this next part is a little various sources state what happens next in different ways. Some say that the cops rang the buzzer outside and the Abbott communicated with them while they were still outside. Mm -hmm. And that while they were outside, the cops said, hey, we got a report of a disturbance in the museum. You need to let us in so we can check it. Okay. There's that version. There's also another version where they ring the buzzer. Abbott can see that it's policemen. Mm -hmm. He sees the uniforms, the hats, the badges, everything. And he buzzes them in. Okay. Okay. After you would get buzzed in at the gardener, you would be put like after hours, you would be put into this little like foyer, this little like secured foyer vestibule type thing. And they called it the man trap. And it was basically Mm -hmm. a spot for the guards to be able to get a look at who was coming into the museum before actually allowing them into the museum. Right. So- Yeah, seems smart. Seems like the the least they could do with (laughs) Yes, since they're basically like, here's all this valuable art and here's a fucking bag of circus peanuts. Not even the actual peanuts, but like the candy circus peanuts that nobody wants and a walkie-talkie. Like, have fun connecting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's either that the cops from outside are like, yo, there's a disturbance or that they make it into that vestibule and are then like, yo, there's a disturbance and we need to come in and check it out. Yeah. It's like I said, it's unclear, but Abbott is like, I saw them. I could see them. They looked like cops. Mm -hmm. 
uniforms, hats, badges, everything. So I buzzed them in. I mean, I'm already thinking, but they're in a hatchback. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So again, they're like, yo, disturbance, we need to be let inside. And even though Abbott didn't know of any disturbance, he was like, well, they're cops. So I'll let them mm-hmm. in. So they enter at 1.24 a.m. Mm-hmm. I already went through the whole thing about them getting in. So the cops after, so whether it's a door or whatever, the alcove, whatever the hell, they finally actually get buzzed into the museum proper. And mm-hmm. they approach Abbott at the security desk and asked if anyone else was in the museum and if there was to bring them down. So Abbott radios Heston and is like, yo, the cops are here. They say there's a disturbance. Come on back so we can get this figured out. It is around this time that Abbott says that he notices that the mustache on the taller of the two cops looks <laughs> to be fake. Whoops. <laughs> I can only imagine that it's like an Amazon, like sticky mustache, yeah. like a Halloween mustache, and that it's like beginning to peel right. at like one corner. And the guy's like, <laughs> you know, and he's like, just trying to get it to say. So that's, that's the only thing I can envision. The shorter of the two cops says that Abbott looks familiar. They might have a warrant for his arrest and to come out from behind the desk. Mm. When Abbott complies, he leaves behind the one and only way of alerting the police, which is that button that's at the security desk. Yeah. So as you may or may not have already sussed out, these two are not cops. They yeah. are in fact thieves. The shorter man pushes Abbott against a wall, spreads his legs, handcuffs him. Abbott does notice that he is not frisked by this police officer, quote unquote, mm-hmm. in heavy quotes. Right around that time, Heston finally comes back and is like, oh shit, what's going on? What did Rick do? <laughs> and that's when he gets handcuffed by the taller of the two cops, the okay. one with the fake mustache. And it's at that point that the that the cops are like, surprise, we're here to rob you. The thieves then, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop referring to them as the cops and I'll now refer to them as the thieves. <laughs> the thieves then restrain the guards by wrapping their heads in duct tape. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That rude. Like it's rude. So rude. <laughs> it's like asking for trouble. Yeah, there is a fantastic picture of Abbott when he was found after the robbery, and I'll post it to social media. It's say. it's a super interesting picture because when I saw it, I was like, oh wow, yeah, this is like so cool to see. And then I was like, wait, when the but what fucking year did this take place? Because it 100% looks like something out of the set, like late 60s, early 70s. Mm. Yeah. Like, and he is, he's like, he's wearing red, he's wearing like these red jeans and like a tie-dye shirt. Like, no, did not care about his job. <laughs> so after that, they, they wrap the guards' heads in duct tape and they lead them down to the basement. They handcuff them. Again, this, there's, there are various forms of this, what the, the facts vary on this. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't talk. So some say that like they got handcuffed to a steam a steam pipe. Others say that it was like a work sink, and that's Heston. Heston gets handcuffed. Abbott just kind of gets dumped. Mm. Like they probably looked at him and they were like, well, "He's no threat." Yeah, tie dye. Another little point of note: the thieves did not need directions to the basement. They knew exactly where they were going. Mm-hmm. So Inside. the. The thieves take a look at the guards, like they take the guards' wallets, look at their IDs, and they threaten them. They say that we know where you live. Be cool, because this is like we're we're gonna rob you, and if and if you if you relax and stay cool, you're gonna get a reward in one year. Okay. Yeah. All of this takes about eleven minutes. So at this point, it's now one thirty-five a.m. 
So remember that infrared motion detector system that I talked about? It tracks every time there's movement in any of the rooms. From what I read, it's unclear whether or not there were motion motion detectors all over the museum or if it was just in the gallery rooms. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But like I said, it tracks... It, it it like pings every time there's movement in any of the rooms and you can actually see the printouts from that night. And it's like, you know, an intruder has been detected. Please investigate. Um, <laughs> Sorry. My head's wrapped in duct tape. <laughs> I'd love I'm to, not. but my head's wrapped in duct tape. Yeah. <laughs> I'm handcuffed to a steam pipe. So good luck. So the first steps recorded in the first room that they enter, which is the Dutch room, are at 1.48 a.m. If you remember, I just told you that they got done putting the guards away at 1.35. Mm-hmm. So what the fuck were they doing for 13 minutes? Yeah. Big question. Aliens? <laughs> Aliens? <laughs> <laughs> Ritual sacrifice? The chupacabra? Um, <laughs> just, a, just a laundry list of all of our old, it's the believability yeah. scale. Um, <laughs> So they enter the Dutch room, and that, of course, has paintings by Dutch painters. Mm-hmm. The thieves take Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee and a lady and a gentleman in black. Ugh, they cut the canvases from the stretchers. Ugh. Yeah. Assholes. Yeah. For anybody who doesn't know, like it's possible to pop a canvas off of their stretcher, and then you can roll up the intact canvas. Yeah. If you are an art thief or an art lover, these guys just cut it. Like mm-hmm. a quick word about the painting storm on the sea of Galilee. It's a depiction of Jesus calming the storm on the sea of Galilee. It is important for two reasons. One Rembrandt there is. Okay. So the painting is a ship in the middle of this like stormy ass sea. It looks like the boat's about to flip over. Like there's an apostle or um, there's an, a, there's a disciple that's like puking over the side of the boat. You know, everybody's like, ah, you know, crazy. Mm-hmm. Jesus is sitting on the right side of the painting. He's all, he's very calm and serene, but like almost smack dab in the middle of the painting and lit very well is a disciple who is looking directly out at the viewer of the painting. That is a self-portrait of Rembrandt. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he painted himself into the painting. It's also important because it was Rembrandt's only seascape. I just looked it up. Uh Uh-huh. Pretty sure, and you can fact check on me, but this was actually used as the book cover of one of my favorite Clive Barker novels. Oh, cool. Because when you said it, I was like, that sounds familiar. And the book is actually called uh, Galilee. So. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So, well, sidebar. And I could be 100% wrong. So, <laughs> If you are, I just you're wasted fired. everyone's time. Um, <laughs> I like that you're like, I wasted everybody's time. And I'm like, you're fired <laughs> from this podcast that we decided to do together. Uh, okay. So they take those two paintings. They also take a teeny tiny stamp sized self-portrait of Rembrandt. They take Landscape with Obelisk by an artist named Flink. They take the concert, which is a Vermeer, and a bronze Chinese goo, which is a, a, a ritual vessel. Okay. They make an attempt to take a large Rembrandt self-portrait, but they end up leaving it behind. The theory about why they left it behind is because that painting, that self-portrait isn't done on canvas. It's done on a big-ass piece of wood. And they were like, oh, we can't fit this in the back of our... (laughs) In the back of our hatchback. Yeah, back of our Pinto or whatever. Yeah, uh, they're fucking Nova. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So they like take it down and they like, I think they got the frame off of it and stuff. And they were like, oh no, fuck this. And they leave it behind. Okay. 
So they entered the Dutch room at 1.48 a.m. At 1.51, one of the thieves leaves the Dutch room and heads into the short gallery on the second floor. The okay. thief who stayed in the Dutch room soon, join, soon joins thief in the short gallery and they start trying to take apart a frame holding a, a Napoleonic flag. Mm-hmm. They abandon this endeavor because it was, it was too hard and they end up only taking a 10 inch gold colored eagle finial that topped the flagpole. Okay. From the short gallery, they also take five Degas sketches before making their way to the blue room where they steal Manet's Chez Tortoni. You want to know something weird about mm-hmm. this piece? The only footsteps that were recorded in the blue room where the Chez Tortoni painting was that night were Abbott's during his patrols. Ooh. Yeah. Aliens. No footsteps were recorded in that room during the hours of the, of the robbery. witchcraft witchcraft so the thieves start like wrapping up and they check on abbott and heston make sure they're like alive and comfortable and all that good stuff they (laughs) do need to adjust the duct tape a little (laughs) anybody need a bathroom break or (laughs) what's up they take the videos that recorded their entrance on the cctvs and they also take the data printout sheets from the motion detectors equipment but that information is also captured on a hard drive, so it it actually yeah. is is fine. They they have it. The thieves were in the museum for eighty one minutes, according to the motion detectors. They only spent thirty four minutes in the galleries actually stealing the shit. Mm. So what the fuck were they doing in there the rest of the time? Yeah, just hanging out. Who knows? The thieves leave the frame for Shay Tortoni at the security desk. They also cut that one out. And that's that one flummoxes people who know the case because that painting was only 10 by 13 inches. Like mm-hmm. they didn't have to cut it out, but they did. And then they left yeah. the frame. Well, it doesn't seem like the most well thought out plan, at least in terms of the actual like ganking of the art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so they leave the frame for Shay Tortoni at the security desk. They grab all of the artwork and they haul it out of the museum through a side door, which was recorded opening only once at 2.45 a.m. So they were like, we've got everything. Guards are good. We've got the videotapes. We've got the printouts. Mm-hmm. We've got all this stuff. Bye. In and out in one. Yeah. yeah. The thieves and the works of art disappear into the night and are never seen again. They've Stop. never been seen again. Ooh. Never been seen again. Yeah. So Abbott and Heston like chill down in the basement for the next four hours until the next shift guards <laughs> show up that morning. Yeah. Surprise. Right. But here's the thing. The next shift guards knew something was up because they couldn't get into the, they couldn't contact anybody in the museum to let yeah. them into the museum. Yeah. So they were like, something's up. So they call the security director. The security director calls the real police. And when mm-hmm. the real police show up, they search the museum until they find the guards tied up in the basement. Mm-hmm. 13 works and pieces of art were stolen in total. At the time of the robbery, the FBI reported that the stolen hall was worth $200 million. Wow. By the year 2000, that estimate had raised to $500 million. There wow. are art collectors in the world who think that that total is actually closer to $600 million. It remains- Just for 13 things. For 13 pieces of art. You know, is that- And two of fucking, them were basically- I was just gonna say, is that gold fucking flag thing? That's... <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the the finial and the Chinese goo were relatively worthless. Mm-hmm. They were pieces like I don't think the finial was actually was worth anything, and the goo was worth like maybe a couple so. of thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. 
No, so, I'm thinking like the fucking Vermeers and shit. Yeah. So it remained the largest museum heist in in terms of value for nearly 30 years until the Dresden Green Vault burglary that happened last year in 2009. Oh, yeah. I read about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The concert by Vermeer was the most valuable piece that they stole on account of there only being 34 to 36 Vermeer paintings still in existence. Ooh. That number varies from source to source. I saw 34 in a lot. I thought I saw 36 in a lot. Mm-hmm. So, but not a lot. It's in the mid 30s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not not a lot. That painting alone, again, the concert by Vermeer, that painting alone is estimated at 250 million dollars. Was estimated at 250 million dollars in 2015. Jesus. Because the sheer because of the value of the works that were stolen the fbi gets called in immediately oh yeah so let's get to some of the weird stuff yeah mm-hmm. so first we have the fact that the manet shay tortoni was taken from the blue room but no footsteps were recorded in there during the robbery yeah. second was how long the thieves were in the building most art heists average three minutes yeah i I mean that's like you said what 84 or something 81 they were in there for nearly an hour and a half yeah that's like you're asking for trouble well and here's here's an interesting thing so remember how i said like you know they get the guards they take them down to the basement Mm -hmm. and then 13 minutes pass between when they leave the guards in the basement and when they actually start robbing Mm -hmm. there are people who think that the thieves were waiting to see if the police were gonna come Mm. i don't know Uh, to me that just like they've already been in there for a hot second it seems weird to like spend all of the time of like duct taping their heads and trying like trotting them down to the basement and then being like let's chill here for a sec to see if the cops show up yeah so because art thefts are usually so quick it's much more of a smash and grab feel to Mm -hmm. them like it's like it's smash and grab or it's very deliberate pointed like we are going in to steal this painting that is on the third floor on the west facing whatever the fuck the mona lisa been stolen a couple times or something i don't know (laughs) fact check me (laughs) i I feel like someone stole the mona lisa at some point but it was like a very targeted like you said Okay, we'll look into that because I have I have no idea. I do know that the scream by Edward Munch was stolen. Like some of the people who worked on that also worked on the Gardner Museum theft. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, most of them are a smash and grab thing. Take three minutes. Not the case with the Gardner. The thieves actually spend a fair amount of the 34 minutes that they spend actually robbing the museum. They spend a fair amount of that time trying to get the stupid flag out of its frame <laughs> and getting the, getting the Chinese yeah, glue off of its metal pedestal. I mean, I get that it's a Napoleonic flag, but like how valuable would that really be when you've already got the freaking Vermeer in hand? Yeah. Well, and listen to this. So while they made off with the largest haul of any art heist up to that point, they actually left behind several paintings that would have been much more valuable. Like the place had Michelangelo's, uh, yeah. Raphael's, Titian's. Titian's Rape of Europa, which is the museum's most valuable painting, and it is widely considered to be one of the most important examples of Renaissance art. That painting was left behind. Mm-hmm. The stolen works have never been seen again. Like, they yeah. have not showed up in any underground black market dealings, nothing. I mean, They've I don't even know how vanished. you fence something that's, like, that valuable. 
but you, but, th- but this is why it's weird because there actually is a market for that. And it's, there's a whole thing. There's a whole, like Scotland Yard, the FBI, what is the, is it Interpol? Interpol, yeah. Yeah, they probably have a whole thing that is all art identification and like art and antiquities acquisitions. That's mm-hmm. what they call them. And they're people who do this stuff because there are motherfuckers out there who are like, I don't care if it sits in my closet and I, I'm the only one who gets to look at it. I want to have the Mona Lisa in my house and I'll pay a pretty, pretty penny for it. It's probably like Jeff Bezos or something. Fuck that guy. Um, Allegedly. Probably, Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> look, we're not saying that Jeff Bezos is... <laughs> <laughs> was responsible for the Gardner Museum theft, but we're also not not saying it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> just, just food for that. <laughs> you know, Bezos, if you want to just clear the air and tell yeah. us where you were on the evening of March 18th, yeah, 1990. Weird, weirdest thing pod at gmail.com. Just you can just let line. us know. <laughs> he sends us an email and it's like cease and desist. Um, <laughs> That's 100% the way that would go. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the local police, FBI, armchair investigators, art dealers, private detectives, and a whole bunch of other people have been fascinated with this case for 30 years. This could have something to do with the fact that the museum, when the, okay, so when the theft happened, the museum didn't have the funds, nor did it have the insurance to put up a reward. Mm Mm-hmm. So the gardener was like, yo, Sotheby's and Christie's, is that the other big auction house? Mm-hmm. Yo, auction houses, can you help us out? And the two auction houses were like, yeah, absolutely. We're yeah. going to pitch in. So they put out a $1 million reward. A okay. few years later, that reward got increased to $5 million. And a few years after that, the award got increased to $10 million. This is for information regarding the returns of the works. Mm-hmm. Also, the statute of limitations on this crime ran out a few years ago and the museum has publicly openly stated that they will not prosecute anyone who cops to having the paintings as long as they're returned but to date the works are still mia i mean that would be a pretty like fucking baller move to like show up now and be like hey i stole all this shit you can't prosecute me reward yeah. please <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you money please um yeah so let's go over some of the suspects okay the fbi immediately started looking into everything that they could about this case Mm -hmm. but there is almost no physical evidence like at all Mm -hmm. the thieves didn't leave behind any hair they didn't leave behind any footprints this i'm not gonna lie this sounds shady as fuck the fingerprints that were left behind were deemed inconclusive because it was unclear whether the fingerprints were those of the thieves or the museum employees. Mm. Like, can't well, I you mean, just I think fingerprint you would... the employees? That's what I would have thought. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't know. I, I mean, want to tell you how to do your job, FBI. But... <laughs> Like local police, I don't want it because that was the thing, right? Is that immediately the evidence was was picked up by the local Boston police? Mm -hmm. Oh no! Sorry, I'm dehydrated. Yeah. Okay. Your urinary tract is in tip top. My my urinary tract is in (laughs) tip top shape. Okay. (laughs) The description. Oh, so okay. So also the descriptions of the cops were like utterly unhelpful like seriously it was like one was five nine to five ten late 30s medium build mm-hmm. that's it the other was six feet or taller early 30s heavier build the police sketches look 
fake. <laughs> it looks like. Oh, I will. Because when you see them, you're going to be like, those look fake as shit. Like, it looks like it was like somebody was all, uh, I don't know, man. Like, what is a what is it? Somebody who robs, like, what do they look like? I don't know. Like they got a, uh, they got like a mustache or something and like a face. Like it's, <laughs> they are so like nondescript that it's, and and like, and they're bad too. Like the yeah. police sketches are badly done. Again, not trying to tell you how to do your job, Boston police, but. But I mean, maybe do your job. Uh, there are so, a bunch of art schools in that area, just saying. <laughs> So one of the people that, of course, immediately got looked at was famed crime boss Whitey Bul- Whitey Bulger, right? Bulger, 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 yeah. Whitey Bulger. He was investigated since he headed uh, the Winter Hill Gang, yeah. though he maintained that not only was he not responsible for the crime, he was owed tribute for the theft because it happened on his turf. Okay, I have heard of this. Yeah, okay. because I, I'm I won't go off for too long but i for a long time when i lived in boston i developed a real whitey bulger obsession uh-huh uh this was back before they caught him like this okay. was like mid-2000s and i read a couple books about him and i remember he was like real irate about this like and in like very like not at all well i wouldn't do something like this it was more no. like motherfuckers owe me some money yeah for, like yeah. doing this on my turf yeah he yeah. actually sent out his agents to figure out who did it mm-hmm. they found nothing yeah. this is terrifying to me because these are not like people that are like oh knock 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 hello ma'am hello like no we'd they're like, like to talk to you about the gardener these, these are people that are like pulling out fingernails and stuff yeah they put well literally were pulling out teeth with pliers yeah okay. yeah and they didn't find anything no like they didn't find out anything. Bulger, Bulger, Bulger was also suspected because of his strong ties to the Boston police. Mm-hmm. And there were investigators who think that maybe that's how the thieves got the cop uniforms or maybe that it was even, they were even actual cops. Well, I can say from a, actually a short film that I did when I lived in Boston, mm-hmm. I discovered how easy it is to fake a cop uniform. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> me and uh, a friend, we put together the wardrobe for the short film and we were like, oh, we could totally like, like if you didn't look close at the badge, like you looked like cops. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So question mark, shrug emoji there. Mm-hmm. Next on the list was the Irish Republican Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, the IRA because had been known of course. Yeah, because, of course, uh, of again taking place in Boston. Mm-hmm. So sure, uh, and and apparently the IRA had been known to pull off art heists, and they had a presence in the city of Boston at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who think that the tripping of the fire alarm was like, um, sorry, the tripping of the fire alarm was a calling card of the IRA in other art heists i guess that had been done according to a man named charlie hill who is a retired here we go art and antiquities investigator for scotland yard the works were given to the ira by whitey bulger and are now in ireland so this this is the theory this is the theory. Yeah. Anthony Amore, who works as the chief investigator at the Gardener, says, quote, I have great respect for Charlie, but he thinks everything stolen ends up in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> there, that comes from the Bloomberg uh, article. And there was a lot of stuff where people were like, I'll tell you where they are. They're this place. And then they would be like, it'd be like, Amore says... <laughs> 
And it was always <laughs> yeah. like, that's not what, that's not what they're, that's not where they're at. So yeah. Charlie Hill states he, he, he has two big reasons for believing that the IRA is involved and that the art is now in Ireland. One, sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> One is that the robbery took place on St. Patrick's Day, and that's obviously an important Irish holiday. Yeah. Solid. There's there's nothing else for that reason other than it was St. Patrick's Day, and that's an important holiday. Mm -hmm. Second is that one. (laughs) Second is that one of the thieves used the word mate during the robbery, and that's not really in U.S. vernacular. Mm -hmm. Um, Hestend. The, uh, who's one of the guards that night says that one of the thieves did in fact use the word mate, but he Heston never got the idea that the thieves were anything other than North American. Mm-hmm. He was I mean, like, there's no way that they weren't either from the U S or Canada. Yeah. I mean, just using the word mate doesn't like, you'd have to have the accent and everything. I mean, I know people who have never been abroad and they say cheers. So yeah, like that's not, that's not, yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't I will say anything. though, like just a little, but back to Whitey Bulger, though, mm-hmm. like he did have extensive ties to the IRA. So it's not like if, you know, if they were known for art heists, it's, it is not outside the realm of possibility, I would say. It is not. But I, but I think, yeah, the evidence that it was St. Patrick's Day maybe need a little more than that. Right. A big other thing for just about everybody else besides this guy, Charlie Hill, is that, yes, the IRA has stolen some art, but why would they come all the way to the U.S. to do Mm -hmm. it? Like, there is plenty of equally valuable art to steal right there in Europe. Yeah. So it it just, it doesn't. Doesn't quite. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah. The next suspect was a man named Brian McDevitt. He was a con man from Boston. Uh, McDevitt was... McDevitt tried and failed to rob the Hyde collection in New York in 1981, and it had a similar MO. McDevitt okay. dressed up like a FedEx driver. He planned to steal a Rembrandt, but everything went to shit when he got stuck in traffic driving the stolen FedEx van. <laughs> but again, it's like, like he bungled it. Yeah. So... Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, maybe he had nine years to work on it and come up with a better plan, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. He also apparently kind of matched the description for the taller of the two thieves, except he has red hair. Okay. Yeah, we can dye your hair or whatever. You can dye your hair. I mean, also no hair was found, so maybe they were wearing wigs. It's possible, yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, McDevitt was questioned twice by the FBI, but they couldn't make anything stick to him. This motherfucker later ended up conning his way into Hollywood where he passed himself off as an award-winning screenwriter, and he even secured himself a position with the Writers Guild. Oh, I think I've heard of this guy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, yeah, 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 man. I write and I write and yeah, yeah. And people were like, cool, awesome. Welcome to the Writers Guild. And then they were like, wait a second. (laughs) Like ran him out of town. (laughs) The last list of suspects are various associates of the Merlino gang, including Carmelo Merlino himself. The FBI investigated a whole bunch of uh, Merlino gang dudes about their possible involvement with the Gardner heist. And they frequently used providing information about the theft as a bargaining chip for like lesser sentences for, mm-hmm. you know, unrelated crimes, that kind of stuff. Merlino himself actually got arrested in 1998 for attempting to rob an armored car depot. 
And he was given the opportunity to, to turn over the paintings for a more lenient sentence. He mm -hmm. couldn't produce the paintings or any information. And he was sentenced to 47 years in prison. He died in prison in 2005. Mm. A man by the name of Martin Lepo, he was a criminal attorney in Boston for over 50 years. He defended Merlino as well as seven other clients who have been considered persons of interest in the Gardner theft. Okay. As far as he knows, none of these, none of these guys did it. Mm -hmm. And he said that Merlino called him and was like, you got to find out who did this because I'm going to like, I'm going to die in there. I'm going to die in prison and mm -hmm. Never could. no information to be found. Yeah. Okay. That seems pretty definitive. That yeah. Not that guy. Yeah. Okay. The letter. In mm -hmm. 1994, Museum director Anne Holly got an anonymous letter from somebody saying that they could negotiate the return of the stolen artwork. This apparently isn't uncommon when dealing with art theft. There'll be a third party that will come in and act as a go-between to negotiate mm -hmm. the return of work, either for a reward or no jail time or whatever, whatever. The letter stated that its writer didn't know the identity of the thieves, that the art was stolen to to reduce a prison sentence but that opportunity had passed and the thieves wanted to wanted to negotiate a return okay the artwork was supposedly being held in a common law country under climate controlled conditions and would be returned for immunity and 2.6 million dollars mm -hmm. the letter stated that if the museum was interested they could publish a coded letter in the boston globe and they even included information that only the museum and the fbi had at the time about the robbery Okay. Holly, the, the museum director, was so down with this idea that she hollered at the FBI. The FBI hollered at the Boston Globe, who printed that coded letter on May 4th, 1994. A second letter was sent to Holly acknowledging that the museum was down to negotiate, but the writer was concerned about the massive, in, the massive investigation and needed time to evaluate their options. Holly never heard from the letter wow. writer again. Yeah. I mean, that... That sounds like that was probably from the actual. Thief. Yeah, she felt really like she was like, I feel like I feel really good about this. I feel like this is a really good lead. Never nope. heard from again. Our last and final suspect, mm -hmm. security guard Rick Abbott. Yeah, I was going to say, like, this guy's going to pop up. <laughs> <laughs> Opening that fucking door for no reason. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. So as a reminder, he is the 23-year-old stoner drunk security guard. <laughs> Abbott was investigated early on because he acted like a fucking weirdo the night of the robbery. Mm -hmm. He was opening and closing the side door. Some people think that that was a signal to the, the thieves waiting outside. Yeah, that's almost um, what I would have thought. Yeah, the fact that it was only his footsteps that were recorded in the blue room where the mm -hmm. Shea torch Tortino? That's, that can't be right. That doesn't sound right. Okay. Where the man was. Abbott told the police that he always opened that door to check that the lock was working correctly, but other museum employees were like, uh, if he did that as routinely as he said he did, supervisors would have found out about it and they would have told him to cut the shit. In 2015, the FBI released footage from the night of the robbery, which showed Abbott buzzing in an unidentified man who came in and talked to Abbott at the security desk. Abbott stated that he didn't recognize the man, nor could he remember the encounter. The FBI was like, who the fuck is this dude? Mm -hmm. And like put it out to the public to be like, if you know anything about this guy, please let us know. Former museum employees came forward and they were like, that is the museum, the museum's deputy security chief um, abbott's boss so for him to be like well i didn't reckon mm, i smell 
something. I mean, it's just like, I mean, I can understand if there was like, I don't know, man, I don't know if somebody came in and talked to me that night, but then being like, well, here's the picture of him being like, yeah, man, I'm drawing a blank. Like what? Yeah. Well, and again, like going back to the theme of the last few weeks, like often these criminals are really pretty dumb. (laughs) Yeah. And like, this seems pretty dumb. Like, yeah, that's your boss. Don't, don't be a weirdo. Just say it's your boss. So there's that. Abbott has been kind of notoriously tight-lipped about the incident. Like Heston will talk to investigators. He'll talk to the press, to journalists. He, you know, he talks about it. He's like, yeah, I was a part of this thing and it happened. Abbott is much more selective about who he will talk to, where, when, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. His account of what happened that night has changed over the years, including what he says was told to him by his bosses about letting anyone into the museum after hours, even cops. So he says that it was unclear to him what he was supposed to do in the event that cops showed up after hours asking to be let in. Mm -hmm. His bosses are like, no, we said don't let anybody in even if it's the cops. After yeah, because like, unless they have a warrant, you don't have to let them in. Yeah. A lot of folks have questioned why Abbott let the thieves in when they said they were there to investigate a reported disturbance when the only way the cops would have known about a disturbance was if one of the museum guards alerted them about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's I was like, wondering about that myself as you were telling. Yeah, and he's real like, uh, yeah, I don't, yeah. who knows, man. And they're I mean, like, no, but why? And he's like, yeah, uh. I mean, to to be fair to this guy, he could also just have been real fucking stoned. (laughs) (laughs) It's possible, I guess. Abbott also talks about how they had a moral code working for the gardener. Like, okay, so he's right. He has been writing a tell-all book about this for like a couple of decades and Mm. continues to just release new versions of the first chapter online like on his facebook oh it sounds like george r R. martin (laughs) (laughs) finish the fucking book george um (laughs) so yes (laughs) (laughs) so he talks about this like in in his in his book that he's writing yeah he talks about how they had this code that they took this job very seriously working at the gardener and blah, 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 blah. But then in the same book, he also goes on to talk about a Christmas Eve party where apparently he let some friends into the museum and they fucking took mushrooms and they looked at art and like, yeah, come on, dude. I mean, yeah. you're wearing your fucking tie dyes and your red jeans. Like, I yeah. There are also stories of Abbott driving to Connecticut to see the Grateful Dead 12 hours after what he calls the most traumatic event of his Mm. life. Now, there is no blueprint for grief or trauma, Mm -hmm. so everybody deals with this in their own way. It's a little strange, though. But it might be just, I mean, in and of itself, it's not weird, but with everything else, it's like, he was like, yeah, man, let's go see the dead. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Abbott was given a polygraph, which he failed. Mm. And although Abbott said that he was a visual artist, those skills didn't come into play when he gave the police the details for the police sketches. <laughs> After seeing the final sketches, Abbott told CNN 23 years later, quote, I remember at the time thinking there's no way they're going to catch the people who did. I'm sorry. There's no way they're going to catch these people from this. Yeah. End quote. Even though Abbott was questioned by the authorities, he maintains his innocent his innocence even now, stating, I took your stupid lie detector tests. 
Which you failed. Which you failed. <laughs> so, like, that. Yeah, that, you fucking failed them. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't been like, cleared of anything. That's not helping you. It's not helping yeah. the argument. The FBI agent who oversaw the case in its early years determined that Abbott and Heston were too incompetent and too foolish to have pulled off the crime. <laughs> I mean, that, I don't know about Heston, but that does seem like Abbott, he, he's either like in on it or he's just kind of like a lunkhead. You know. Sorry, Abbott, if you're listening to the show. I don't know you. Abbott now works as a teacher's aide in Vermont. According to the Bloomberg article, quote, not the profile of someone who spent decades harboring millions of dollars in stolen art, or maybe exactly the profile of somebody who spent decades harboring millions of dollars in stolen art. Also, was it about the money? Like he could have been the thrill, it could have been someone could have put him up to it. Like who knows? Again, I don't know you, Abbott. Sorry if I'm slandering you, but I'm suspicious. I don't know. I think I think it's I think it's shady as hell. And I think the fact that that got entered into it, like Scotty, you and I have talked about this a lot. I think one of the most serious mistakes that people make is assuming that they are smarter than other people. Mm-hmm. Because once you assume that you're smarter than other people, it is the easiest thing in the world to play you. Yeah. Because all you have to do is act dumb. And then people are like, I don't even have to pay attention to you That's because true. I'm smarter than you. That's true. Which also means like, I'm probably like, I'm just ripe for the pickings because I always assume I'm smarter than everybody else. <laughs> so. I frequently assume that I know less than everybody in the room. I have so you're a, good. You're safe. I have a, I have a really like weird complex about really feeling like I am intellectually the weakest link in every yeah, uh, I in every ha- setting that I'm in. I don't have that complex. I have the other <laughs> complex. <laughs> I go the other way. Well, okay. Um, no. just, the title of this episode should just be, wow, Scotty's kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So remember how I talked about the stipulations in Isabella's will about the museum? Yeah. So we're going to come back to that now. The stipulations in Isabella's will stated that the works could never be rearranged, sold, or donated, and mm. new art could never be added. If these rules were violated, the entire collection, the building, and even the land itself on which the museum sat would be turned over to Harvard. Oh, wow. Okay. Because of this, the works have never been replaced. And the staff just rehung the empty frames on the wall where they sit to this day as placeholders for the, wis- for the missing works, quote, symbols of hope awaiting their return, end mm, quote. That's kind of sad. And that is the curious and mysterious tale of the Gardner Museum theft. Wow. That, that's a crazy story. I mean, I, yeah, I hadn't really heard of it. The only part of it I'd heard was I do remember the Whitey Bulger part. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know anything about the details. I just knew he was like real pissed off to be accused of i think it would also be like if he was involved if whitey was involved that would be like a good way of throwing off the scent is acting like real belligerent about it and then sending out <laughs> your goons to like investigate right to like rough up some people yeah. it's uh it's like the the scene in oceans 11 where george clooney is getting beat up by the dude and he's like ah oh like in the room by himself yeah. So that's just what I imagine yeah. these these uh, well, organized crime folks doing in there. Real quick, like Whitey Bulger story, just just to give mm-hmm. you a little sense of what this guy was like. He won the lottery, like I think twice or something, and like okay. a big jackpot. But it turns out all he did is like he found out who the lottery winner was, went to their house, and was like, "Give me that fucking ticket," <laughs> and they went and won the lottery. 
They're like, but I won the lot. He's like, no, you didn't. I won. Man. Yeah. Not not a nice guy was that Whitey Bulger. Not, also, not. like you're doing your own thing, man. Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about yeah. what anybody no, else. He like, was, let these little town folk have their fucking lottery winnings. I should do I should do an episode on Whitey Bulger because that guy was fascinating. Yeah. Um, like I said, I got kind of obsessed with him, and I did meet one of his like henchmen. Have I ever told you this story? Nope. When I was, uh, it was this guy named Kevin Weeks. Um, who was uh, one of his he's in the movie that Johnny Depp was in about him he's played by the guy who plays Todd in Breaking Bad okay but he wrote a book like he wrote a tell-all book in the years after and so when I was going to school at BU this book came out and he did a reading at the BU bookstore okay Okay. (laughs) and I went and it was a little terrifying because at this time, like I had sort of adopted a Boston look a little bit. Like mm-hmm. I had this long black leather like jacket and I always wore the like little flat cap and stuff. And I have kind of a red beard. So like if you didn't know any better, you might think I was local. And I go to this reading and everyone's like a professor. You know, it's like a very academic crowd. And then there's me with right. my fucking like Boston gangster look. Yep. And here comes Kevin Weeks and he's like, he's like, hey, how's it going? Blah, blah, blah. Shaking hands. He gets to me and I just saw this moment where he looks me in the eye and he's just like, who's this fucking guy? And it was, and it was like, he was like super charming and then he gets to me and it was just this like dead, cold, like, who's this fucking guy? And I was just like, hi. My name's Scotty Milder. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm here to make movies. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. I think, I mean, I think I literally shrank like in my seat. I'm sorry. I don't know why I just made you sound like that. Oh. I mean, that's the voice that was happening in my head when he was looking at me. So I'm actually from Los Alamos, New Mexico. <laughs> yeah. And then he got up and did his reading and he told this like in this very flat tone, he read this chapter. There's just this horrible story about murdering someone and then pulling their teeth out with pliers or something. Mm-hmm. And like, and he's reading it like he's reading out of a cookbook. And then finally, during the question and answer session, like someone asked him, like, do you feel guilt or remorse <laughs> about or any of this? anything? And he literally looked at the guy like he didn't understand the question. He was like, well, I wish I didn't get caught, if that's what you mean. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That's that's my very tiny little connection to the Whitey Bulger story. So do you think that because, you know, we have a, a true crime podcast that we're big fans of and mm-hmm. those those ladies really don't really aren't into talking about uh, like mob hit hit men. Mm-hmm murders and that kind of stuff. But my question talking about like the psychology of it, do you think these are people that just that like were are like sociopaths, psychopaths and just happen to sort of fall into a profession where they can make that work for I them? Mean, I think, or like is it nurture or nature? I think it's a mix. Like when you read like when you read about Whitey Bulger, that guy was a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Like he was just a genuine psychopath. There's also a guy named Richard Kuklinski who is uh, the Iceman. He was like one of the worst um hitmen. Yep. And there's a whole like uh, HBO kind of interview series with him. He was the guy who had like the nice normal like life on the side, like wife and kid, family man. And then, you know, his day job is going out and killing people for the mob. Mm -hmm. And like, he was pretty clearly a psychopath. Um, So I think it's, but then I think like, you know, this Kevin Weeks guy, I don't know that that guy's a psychopath, but he was like, there's a scary hardness to him just in that little brief interaction. Yeah. And that, but, but that could be just like, you know, he was, you know, here he is writing this tell all book about his time in Whitey Bulger's gang. Whitey Bulger is on the lamb after having been a rat to the FBI, all this stuff. Right. So, you know, 
gotta imagine it's in the back of his head like is someone gunning for me so he's sitting there and he's like who's this fucking guy like that totally makes sense so like i'm fascinated by like mafia and organized crime organizations because Mm -hmm. it is like the society behind it whether it is whether these are psychopaths it's a psychopathic society that turns people like their behavior becomes psychopathic right and there's a very like i mean I think to anybody who is not a part of that world, it seems very foreign to us, but there's a very real code of ethics in there and like rules that you do not break. Well, particularly when you get to, like I mentioned this last week, I was talking about the DeFeo murders. Like Mm -hmm. when you get to the, the classic sort of La Cosa Nostra Italian Sicilian mafia Mm -hmm. like there was very much a very strict code about like who was and was not sort of fair game you know obviously if you're a rat if you're a stool pigeon but like you couldn't kill a made guy unless you got approval didn't go after families etc etc but then you get to some of the other you know different organizations like you get to the the some of the the cartels down in mexico there's like no code of honor it's like they will do whatever the fuck they Right. And I don't know how it goes with like Irish, you know, um, like the Irish, uh, whoops, sorry, getting close to the mic right there, like crime families and stuff. And it's I, like, I'm kind of fascinated with the origins of the Italian Sicilian mafia and like why that all got started in the old world and how it moved from the old world to well, yeah. the US. And I mean, a big difference between, and this is like going back because I've read a bunch of books about this, but it's been a while, so I might get some facts wrong. Okay. But, you know, like the Italian, you know, the Sicilian mafia, mm-hmm. like goes back to secret societies from like the Middle Ages. Yeah. Stuff. Whereas like the Irish mob, the Irish gangsters were much more just opportunistic. Like, you know, these are immigrants trying to make their way and they kind of fall. And like one thing that happened with a lot of the Irish gangsters is that they moved into politics. Yeah. So a lot of like <laughs> the corrupt, like, you know, uh, party bosses and stuff were like tied into Irish gangs, and, and well, and they, the Kennedys had ties to them all. Yeah, right? yeah, like you know, Joe Kennedy was a bootlegger and stuff. You know, so it's different. Then you have like the Jewish mafias, the Jewish gangsters, and they were kind of playing everybody against each other. Mm-hmm. Not to like play into stereotypes, but like <laughs> when you read again, I'm a Jew. Don't get mad at me. Don't come at me. But when you read the history, you know, they were kind of playing the Irish and the Italian somewhat against each other and then essentially allied with the italian mafia and eliminated like there's a reason why whitey bulger was considered the last irish gangster because they were all just like kind of killed off by the they either went legit like the kennedys mm-hmm. again allegedly um, heavy air quotes yeah. around that or like you know things like the same valentine's day massacre like they were just they were just gunned down you right, know, during right, prohibition right, right. And stuff. so and you have like remnants you have like the westies that existed up until the 70s and 80s i think in new york but there really isn't like an irish mob quote unquote anymore the way there used to be like whitey bulger really was kind of the last wow it's, it's, yeah we might have to do we might have to do a a, a mafia episode i've thought about super interesting i've thought about doing something on jewish gangsters at some mm-hmm. point because like someone like meyer lansky or dutch schultz because Right. There is this, I, I have a personal fascination because as a Jewish person, I have a personal fascination with the idea of the Jewish gangster. And there are some, like Meyer Lansky in particular is a really fascinating character. So I'll probably touch on that stuff again. I don't think I even knew that there was a Jewish mafia until the episode of The West Wing where you find out that 
Toby's, Toby's dad, dad part of right. Murder Inc. Yeah. Yeah. And what uh, is he? He's, he's like, Dutch Schultz never heard of me or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah 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 that that might be that might be an episode that's coming up uh in the future because i think that's yeah, it's is. a big sprawling like there if anyone is they were totally we're totally on a tangent here there's a really fascinating book i read around the time that i was reading all the whitey bulger stuff it's called mm-hmm. patty whacked mm-hmm. it's by a guy named tj english and it's basically the history of the irish mom in the u.s Oh, cool. Okay. Um, and it touches on Whitey Bulger and stuff, but it also basically touches on like how, like, essentially, you know, you have the early gangsters were these ethnic gangs, you know, gang- mm-hmm. immigrant gangs. So you had the Irish were kind of the first wave, and then followed by the Jewish gangs and the Italian gangs. And the Jewish gangs and the Italian gangs essentially ganged up on the Irish gangs, from what I remember. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah, it, it's like sociologically, I find all that stuff really fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, let me let me qualify that. I'm not like you know mob worshiping here. Um, right. If we do have any mafiosos listening, no shade to you either. But... <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. And again. <laughs> All correspondence goes to Amelia and Poirot. At- no! <laughs> at P.O. Box. Um- <laughs> In Antarctica, yeah. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah, yeah. With um, You know what movie I got a wild hair up my ass to watch the other day? And it's a bit hard because you can't really find it it's not like super available was i don't know if you remember uh back in the day hbo released the movie the rat pack oh and yeah it had ray Liotta's frank sinatra right don Cheadle was in it oh it's it's Is it good i i mean i'm again i am sort of fascinated with the rat pack like i could probably mm-hmm. do a whole episode on the rat pack again because it was just like these this like this fucking gang of dudes that like yeah you know, the world was their oyster. It is, it, Scotty, remember I was talking about this because I was like, what the fuck is with the, 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 the scenes of people taking, of presidents taking somebody down into the kitchens of the White House and eating ice cream <laughs> eating out of the big cream. tubs? Yeah. yeah, and it happened and it, it's happened in like several movies that I was like, is this a thing about like being president and living at the White House that you can just like toddle down there and there's the giant like five gallon tubs of you know, pistachio ice cream and rainbow sherbet and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, there's a whole scene in there where like it, it alleges that Frank Sinatra was working with some mob people to get Kennedy. Elected. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's a whole, there's a whole, we could do a whole JFK like season yeah. of this podcast. Uh, and I think that's a not a lot there. I think at this point, that's not even like a conspiracy theory. I think a lot of that's been confirmed. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to talk. I mean, I could be wrong. (laughs) And then something ends up happening, and I guess I think it was that the mob was like, "Yeah, we're gonna do this," but tell Joe that he owes us or something like that, and Mm -hmm. then wasn't able to follow through. And then there's the scene where two mobsters are debating about whether or not they should whack Frank Sinatra, and Mm one like the head mobsters, Momo. Is that his name? It might be. I feel like Momo is. I feel like Momo is correct. But the head, the head dude, you know, like his 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 second or whatever is like, you want me to go whack him? And the head guy's like, nah. And he says something. He's like, you know, uh, I want I want to hear I want to hear Frank sing Chicago one more time or something like that. It's like his real <laughs> stupid thing. Yeah. Um, but it's Don Cheadle is fantastic in it. He plays Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. and he's really great. Uh, I that's why I got into it because I had listened to an episode 
episode of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. And that episode was called The Hug Heard Round the World, which is like a beautiful and heartbreaking look at Sammy Davis Jr.'s role in the Rat Pack and mm-hmm. in like fame in Hollywood. Um, one of the things that he talks about is they did a roast of Sammy uh, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, it was Frank and Dean and, and all of the guys. And it's, oh, it's just, it's, it's rough. It's brutal. It's brutal. And like Sammy's just trying to let everything roll off his back. You know, he's trying to be a duck as much as he can, but it's just like, there's no possible Mm -hmm. way. And the hug that they're talking about is that Sammy supported Nixon and Nixon was kind of like, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and the hug that they talk about is at the, I think at the Republican national convention, Sammy introduced him. And when Nixon came out, Sammy like gave him a hug and I think um, I've heard of this. Yeah. yeah, it's a really like it's it's a wonderful, wonderful episode. Uh again, Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history. I believe it's called uh, The Hug Heard Round the World. I'll have to check that one out because I've always like of the rat packers, my two favorites have always been. I love Dean Martin. You've got Dean Martin, man. And then Dean Sammy Martin. Yeah. yeah, Dean Martin, who was like sipping apple juice out of his glass and stuff, yeah. like <laughs> Yeah, no, I I, I love Dean Martin because he was like a legitimately good actor. I Uh, I think he was a better actor than Frank Sinatra, to be honest. I think, I mean, I'm going to say it. I think this is a hot take and please don't at me with your opinions because I am not interested. I think a better (laughs) singer than Frank Sinatra. I I love Dean's voice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that, I think. Love it. Yeah, yeah, and they're I, fascinating. And I've always loved Sammy Davis Jr. Like, mm-hmm. I remember as a kid, he would, like, pop up on sitcoms and stuff back in the 80s. Yep. Kind of towards the end of his career, I guess. And yeah. I, just, I really liked him. Yeah, Sammy, um, Don Cheadle learned to tap dance to play Sammy because there's this whole, he he learned to tap dance and sing. And he does a pretty, you know, Sammy had Sammy Davis Jr. had a very, and he talks about it in this, they talk about it in this episode of this podcast, that Sammy was code switching. Mm-hmm. He, he created this persona of this black man who was very palatable to the you like Hollywood entertainment industry. Right. And, you know, he talks, there's a whole thing with uh he's on, I don't know, like Dick Cavett or something. And he's talking about how, you know, he doesn't sound like a black man and that that has been a very specific thing that he has worked hard to do and mm. and and all of these things. And so Don Cheadle playing Sammy Davis Jr. does a really wonderful job of, I think, capturing like the essence of Sammy Davis Jr. without doing like a Sammy Davis Jr. impression. Nice. But so yeah, like learn to tap and learn to sing and do all this stuff for the movie. It's but have, like I said, it's movie. it's also hard to find. Yeah, I have to look for it because that sounds really that sounds really fascinating. Yeah, it is awful in terms of the way that they treat women. Like Marilyn Monroe makes an appearance. Mm. Who was Frank Sinatra's chick? Was it Ava Gardner? Uh, perhaps. Yeah, it was one of those Hollywood brunettes. And I mean, you know, it kind of seems like Marilyn just kind of like got passed around and she's a, she's a, she's a tragic story. And at the same time, I probably won't do her because there's been a whole lot about Marilyn Monroe. And um, I don't know that I'm super interested in telling her story. Yeah. I think most people know the story. I mean, I, if I, I've thought, I actually had thought about doing just the movie, the misfits, which was, Mm both her last movie and Montgomery Cliff's last movie because oh, it was yeah. this and I think Clark Gable's last movie it was like all of their last movie I think she gave Clark Gable a heart attack on that movie I think so yeah so like there's I, I might just do specifically that story 
because mm-hmm. I, I, that had crossed my mind a while back. Well, like we piece of film history, right? And we talked about doing some sort of like tragic Holly, like tragic movie stories or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there might be something in there as well. I'll put a pin in that. Yeah, put a pin in that. I'll go back and read uh, the the book I read about the Chateau Marmont early, oh, yeah. early on in quarantine when I was in my golden age of Hollywood phase. <laughs> right. I remember that. Yeah, I'm still not out of it. It's just that I got a lot. I was able, I, like pop culture was sort of like, oh, if you're interested in stuff, here's, keep, here's, keep yeah, here's stuff. Penny Dreadful. Here's Perry Mason. Here's yeah. Hollywood, the series on Netflix. And I was like, yeah, man, hit me it's with all of it. Bring it. <laughs> <laughs> all right i guess we well, should probably like, wrap it up since i think this is a two plus hour yeah episode well, i think for for the fact that i think we have like a cumulative five hours of sleep between us or something i think didn't we didn't do, too, do bad. too bad let yeah. us know in the comments if we did in fact do too bad yeah. um noise <laughs> <laughs> uh find us on instagram facebook Email mm-hmm. us at the weirdest thing or weirdest thing pod at gmail.com. Yep. 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 Uh, leave us your comments. If you guys want to share cool stories that you'd like to hear us do, send us those. And yeah, don't we'll forget see you next time to rate and review and share oh, yeah. with your friends. Yeah. And also guys, I've seen that a couple of people have rated and reviewed us and thank you so much. It's yeah, super really amazing. It. I don't have the words to describe it right now because I'm sleep deprived, but it means a lot to us. So <laughs> thank does. you very much. All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys. We'll Well, see you next week. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest.